0: Uh, My name is Ryan. I am the youth pastor here at Calvary Chapel Mission Viejo. I get the privilege of teaching today, as our beloved pastor is getting some well-needed rest. So I get to yell at you for an hour, so just kidding, kind of. One of the uh, joys of my life is studying the Bible. Not because I'm in love with the Bible, I'm in love with the God of the Bible. And God has chosen to reveal Himself through the Bible, and it is... uh, It's truly been one of the greatest pleasures of my life to teach and exposit uh, God's Word. This morning, we're going to survey Mark chapter 8, verses really 27 through Mark chapter 9, verse 50. This morning's message is a compilation of about six sermons squeezed into one. Uh, But I think that there are times when surveying sections of Scripture proves very profitable for us as we zoom out, we can see kind of the, the main theme of what God was wanting uh, to say to us in those sections of Scripture. And so let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we love you dearly. I pray that as a result of hearing your word this morning, we would be all the more passionate for you, for the gospel, for Christ That Christ would be exalted in this place and honored. That you, Father, would be worshipped as God. And that we would humble ourselves as your creation, seeking instruction and direction. Not telling you how it should be, but asking our Creator how we should be. And so, Father, would you bring clarity? Would you bring conviction? Would you... uh, bless our time together this morning. Lord, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to You. I pray that the things that I say would be true and accurate. I pray for grace for the hearers, that their hearts would be able to receive and their ears attentive to listening to what the Spirit says to the church. We love You. Come, Holy Spirit. Enlighten the Word of God to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't already turned there, please turn to Mark chapter 8, verse, uh, how about 34? Several years ago, I had a conversation with a high school student who was reluctant to hang out with a boy at his school, who was also a Christian. When I asked this young student why he would not hang out with this boy, he said it was because he was, and I quote, too Christian. When I asked him what too Christian meant, he told me that he thought that this boy was a Christian, was too Christian because all he wanted to do was to talk about God and share the gospel. In fact, this boy, believe it or not, he even brought his Bible to school every day. Well, as a pastor, you could imagine I was so sad upon hearing. That this boy who I love thought that this other kid was too Christian. It's sad to say, I've also heard many adults say the same thing. Now, adults don't usually call passionate, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians too Christian. Adults usually write off passionate Christians as radical In fact, I have been called by other so-called Christians at times radical because I take the Bible literally and I actually believe what it says. I believe that today there exists within the church much confusion about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, I think we find that answer. It says this, Go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples or followers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then this is what a disciple does. Teaching them to, here it comes, observe or do all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this morning we're going to use the term follower and disciple synonymously. In fact, the Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines a disciple as someone who follows another person or another way of life and who submits himself to the discipline or teaching of that leader or way. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will seek to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Not just some of what He commanded. There is no such thing as true to Christian. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. You are in or you are out. You are a follower or you are not. Believers have been given a new nature and love God and want all of God, not some of God. We believe all of God, not some of God. So in order to be a disciple, you must be observing or living out the commands of Christ, seeking to But in order to live out the commands of Christ, we must know, listen, what they are. It's kind of hard to live out something that you don't know what to... I mean, you want to live something out, but you just don't know what to do. This is why I believe there is confusion about what it means to be a disciple in the church today. Too many confessing Christians do not know what Jesus has commanded them to obey. We know the gospel... We know what Christ has done for us. But listen, that is just the beginning. That's why it's called new birth or being born again. You're starting out. But once you are born again, you need to grow and learn what Jesus is commanding His children to be. And so the title of my message this morning is The Demands of Discipleship. The Demands of Discipleship. It is my aim this morning to clarify in part What being a disciple or a follower of Jesus looks like in the life of a believer. And then to exhort you to observe what Jesus has commanded you to do. It is my hope and prayer that after hearing the words of Christ this morning, we all might be a little more transformed into the image of Jesus through the renewing of our minds. I particularly like confronting people with what Jesus says his followers do, because I believe, as Matthew 13 says, within the church there are many unsaved, the tares. And we need to be confronted with what Christ calls us to be so that we might, A, be convicted and called to repentance and enter into the joy of the Lord through the salvation that is given to us through Christ or be greatly encouraged knowing that through the power of the Holy Spirit we are indeed following Jesus. And so, if you're not already there, please turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is a turning point in the book of Mark. Let me bring you up to speed as to what's happened so far in the gospel of Mark before chapter 8. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, John the Baptist shows up and he's the forerunner of the Messiah preparing the way for the Savior of the world. In chapters 1, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 23, uh, that's the section of the Gospel of Mark that we call the beginning Galilean ministry. The reason it's called that is because Jesus spent most of his time in and around the Sea of Galilee, which is on the north side or the northern end of Jerusalem and into the middle of it as well. In chapter 7, verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 50, we call that the broadening Galilean ministry because Jesus begins to spread his influence outside of just the Galilee region. And then in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, that is the road to Jerusalem after Jesus uh, completes uh, preaching that he is the messiah and everyone to repent and believe in him for salvation and instructing the disciples on what it means to be a follower of christ he sets his sights on jerusalem to go and be crucified and he has some more things to teach the disciples along the way and then in mark chapters 11 through 16 that is all about the last week of jesus's life we would call that the passion week in fact, the Gospel of Mark, which surprises many because it's the shortest Gospel, it contains more about the crucifixion of Christ or the last week of Christ than any of the other Gospels. Uh, chapters 11 through 16 are dedicated to that. And that's kind of a rough outline for the book of Mark, but there are also uh, subplots within the meta narrative. Uh, the metanarrative or the word metanarrative just means the main theme. The main theme is God sending His Son into the world to die and to take the, our place for our sin and to rise again, conquering death, and to save His uh, creation by paying for our sin. Some subplots that exist within the Gospel of Mark uh, are, we'll say, judgment and training. Judgment and training. Not only is Mark chapter 8 a pivotal point in the gospel of mark but also mark chapter 3 verse 6 in mark chapter 3 verse 6 for the first time we see the pharisees and the herodians conspiring to kill jesus and as a pronunciation of judgment jesus does at that moment in the preceding verses two things number one he begins to speak in parables he begins to speak in parables uh, the reason that Jesus began to speak in parables was to mask the truth of God from the people that were seeking to kill them, him. They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and Jesus had rejected them. Uh, that's why up until that point in the Gospel of Mark, parables are not used. And after, immediately after uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 6, as they seek to kill him, Jesus begins to speak in parables. And we uh, have that question, well, why do you mask the truth of God in a story? Why did you begin to speak in parables, Jesus? The disciples had that same question. Jesus answered that question in Mark 4, 11, and he said, and he was saying to them, this is Jesus, to you uh, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. It was a pronunciation of judgment upon an unbelieving uh, religious, false religious system. Not only that, did Jesus begin to mask the truth in parables, he then removes the Pharisees from a position of leadership in the nation of Israel, a spiritual position of leadership. That's why he appointed 12 apostles. They were to start the church after he resurrected and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, why 12? Well, Luke twenty-two thirty gives us the answer, and he says to these 12 apostles, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the appointing of the twelve was a replacement uh, of the leadership of a false religious system to now appointing leaders of the true religious system, uh, the new covenant, the covenant we have in Christ. So that is one subplot. Another subplot, the subplot that we're going to focus on this morning, is the subplot of training. After Jesus pronounces judgment upon them and appoints the twelve, he's got to train these guys. They're going to be the ones who are going to birth to church in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. And he, they are going to be used by God to do things that no one else in the world had done before them. But they needed to be, tra- to be trained. So Jesus spends, uh, in Mark chapter 3, all the way through basically Mark chapter really the rest of the chapter of Mark, there's a subplot of training going on. Now, fast forward to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, for the first time, the apostles understand that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And upon coming to that realization, Jesus ups the training because they finally are beginning to get who Jesus is and what He has come to do. In fact, for the first time in Mark, we see the apostles confessing that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, in verse 29 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, or Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And what happens after that profession, from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to Mark chapter 9 through 50 jesus gives them a series of object lessons of what true discipleship looks like in other words jesus was saying this all right guys you're beginning to get it i am the savior of the world now that you understand that now we have to talk about what your life needs to look like if you're going to follow me and so jesus gives them a series of six object lessons And so, each of these could be a sermon in themselves. We're going to try to do all six in one. So again, the title of my message is Discipleship Demands Complete... I'm sorry. Uh, The title of my message is The Demands of Discipleship. Point number one, or object lesson number one. Discipleship Demands Complete Commitment. Discipleship Demands Complete Commitment commitment. There is no such thing as two Christian. This is found in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Let's read those verses together. And he summoned the crowd and his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. You see, upon realizing that Jesus was the Savior in verse 29... Jesus then, in verse 31, begins expo- ex- unfolding in plain language to the disciples what he was going to do to save the world. He was going to be crucified and raised again in three days after he was killed by the chief priests. Uh, Peter and the 11 uh, disciples, in agreement, began to tell Jesus that he was wrong. No, you are the king. You are not the suffering servant. You're going to die. No, you're not. And so Satan tempting Peter to, uh, or Satan tempting Jesus through Peter to um, subvert the cross. Jesus then turns to Peter and says, "Get behind me, Satan!" And Jesus, so disturbed by Peter and the apostles' unwillingness to listen to him, that he gathers the crowd together and he corrects them, and he basically says. You need to stop doing things your way and stop, and start doing them mine if you're going to follow me. So essentially, in these verses, Jesus is saying that discipleship demands complete commitment. Well, what does complete commitment look like in the life of a believer? And by the way, own, listen, if you're a believer, you're completely committed. If you're not completely committed, you're not saved. I just want to make that very clear because I'm grieved by people that think they're saved when they're not committed. It doesn't work that way. Nowhere did Jesus tell you that there's gray room. You're either in or you're out. This is some black and white stuff Jesus is talking about here. So what does it mean to be completely committed? What does that look like in a life of a believer? Well, very simply put, look at verse 34. Jesus says, he summoned the crowd his disciples and he said to him, here it comes, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Very simply put, complete commitment means to follow Jesus or to be a disciple. But if this is not some type of casual following like many think God is okay with, oh no. This type of following is radical. And Jesus demands from His disciples nothing less. Jesus said that in order to follow Him, we must take up our cross. Well, what does that mean? It means to invest your life in the kingdom of God, even if that means your own death. The cross is a sign of of death. In order to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give your all for Him and to Him just as He gave all for you and to you through His death and resurrection. Jesus paid it all. He gave everything to save you and He expects nothing less from His true followers. But in order to invest your life in the kingdom of God and to pick up your cross, You have to be willing to deny yourself. Well, what does it mean to deny yourself? I think that it means that you have to be willing to put the priorities of Christ and God before your own fallen fleshly desires. So many professing Christians say, I'm saved. And then you watch their life unfold and they're not investing their lives in the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit is not empowering them to overcome their own desires. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples upon their realization that he was the Savior. Think about this. You come for the first time in your life to the realization that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And the very next words that Jesus says to you is, I'm dying for you. Now I'm calling you to die for me. You're either in or you're out. This is not casual, lighthearted Christianity, folks. This is Jesus telling us that being a Christian entails suffering and complete commitment because there are times that in order for Christ to be glorified in our lives, we must suffer through self-denial. How about you? Are you investing your life in the kingdom of God at the expense of yourself? If not, you might not be following Jesus Christ. Discipleship demands complete commitment. Point number two discipleship demands that we receive great encouragement. Discipleship demands that we receive great encouragement. The verses that come after the ones that we just read, I find very, very encouraging. Because if you're anything like me, it's not, it doesn't make me warm and fuzzy inside to think that I have to suffer to glorify Christ. And my guess is that's probably you as well. And Jesus, knowing his creation, then, I believe, begins to encourage them in an incredible way. In Mark 9, verses 2 through 4, let's read those verses. Six days later, after uh, the events that we just read about, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought him up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them among with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. What were Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about? Well, Luke 9, 31 tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his coming crucifixion. Here in these verses, we see the transfiguration of Jesus. According to the Lao uh, uh, Nida Greek lexicon, the word transfigured in verse 2 means to take on a different physical form or appearance. Jesus was literally transformed right in front of them. Well, what was he transformed into? Well, verse 3 gives us a hint. It says, His garments became radiant and exceedingly white. Radiant referring to his glory and power, and exceedingly white refers to his holiness. Now, why did this happen? A casual reading of this section, to me, almost makes it look like this account is out of place. Now, this event was the event that birthed the doctrine of glorification, and it really helps us to understand who Christ truly is. This section of Scripture shows Jesus is God, and is an important text for Christology, which is the study of Christ and theology. But why did Jesus transform himself at this time? Well, I think the answer is because his disciples now understood that he was the Savior. But now that they understood that, Jesus told them that they were going to have to give their lives in service to him. And that's not a very exciting thing to hear, especially when you're a disciple and you really don't understand much because remember, six days ago, they just came to the realization that Jesus was the Savior. I mean, they didn't know a whole lot of God's unfolding plan yet. They didn't know about glorification. They didn't know about what was going to happen to them in heaven. They didn't know when they were going to be in a place where there was no suffering eventually. These guys were probably, I think, a little discouraged. And so now that they understood that Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew that he was not only the Savior, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, understand this. Seeing this would have been a great encouragement for Peter. And Peter needed to be encouraged because Jesus just got done telling him that he was going to have to suffer if he was going to follow him. Discipleship demands that we receive great encouragement. Imagine this. Jesus, you've only seen him in the flesh. And he's teaching you that he's God and the savior of the world. And then you come to the realization that he is God. And then he says to you, and now you're going to suffer. And you're like, uh. And so then six days later, he takes you up on a mountain and he shows you so you can see with your own eyes that he is God. Imagine Peter coming back down that mountain. Do you think he was willing to suffer? Because he got a glimpse of what was to come for him and for all who would follow Christ. So he was excited and encouraged as a result. In fact, Peter was so encouraged by this event that about 30 years later, he wrote about it in Second Peter verses uh, 16 and 18 of chapter 1. Peter said this, "'For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father,' such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic uh, glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what's interesting is if you read Second Peter and you get to the end of it in chapter 3, Peter is preparing the church to suffer. And what he's doing is he's telling them that the world is going to be burned with fire and judged by God. And so that understanding should lead them to live a holy life longing for heaven, not for this earth. And to encourage them in that reality, Peter refers back to an event that happened to him 30 years ago. And he says, guys, I've seen it. It's true. This would have been an incredible encouragement. Folks, following Jesus involves suffering. And if that is hard for you to accept or it discourages you, take heart. Suffering for Jesus is only temporary. And one day you will follow our risen Lord into glory. Jesus has conquered the grave. If you are following Jesus now, you will follow Him into heaven. But the same thing is true of Satan. If you are following Him now, you will follow Him into hell. Suffering always precedes glory. Suffering preceded the glory of Christ and suffering precedes glory for the believer as well. In fact, in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said this, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Point number three. Discipleship demands attentive listening. Discipleship demands attentive listening. In these verses, we see God... I'm sorry, look at Mark 9, verses 5 through 8. Mark 9, verses 5 through 8. This is that same account. As soon as they saw Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus, verse 5 says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is, is it, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles or places of worship. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. When a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You see, in these verses we see God making it known to his disciples and to us that the most important words we will ever hear are from Jesus. Here we see Peter making Moses and Elijah's influence equal to that of Jesus. And at that moment, God interrupts Peter and with absolute authority makes it clear that Jesus is who we should be listening to. Now, why is Moses and Elijah so significant here? Well, because these guys were the heroes of the faith and the sources of authority for a first century Jew. Moses represented the law and Moses rep- and Elijah represented the prophets. So this is fascinating to me because in a sense what you have is you have the entire Old Testament represented standing with Christ, pointing to and talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And so as Peter's hearing Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about his coming crucifixion, Peter makes Moses and Elijah equal to Jesus because they're also in a glorified state. And so Peter said, that's it. Let's worship all three of you. And God comes in a mist forms in the cloud parts and God says, Peter, stop it. This is my son. Listen to him. In other words, Moses and Elijah are pointing to my son. You need to listen to my son. The voice of Christ should be a greater influence to you, Peter, than Moses and Elijah. Because Moses and Elijah were just pointing to the Savior. And we know that from the New Testament letters. In fact, Jesus Himself said this in Luke twenty four forty four. Now He said to them, Jesus, these are My words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We need to make the priority of listen, or listen, We need to make listening to Jesus a priority in our lives. In fact, Hebrews one verses one and two it says this: God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. You want to know God? You want to hear the voice of of God? He speaks to us through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. There were many voices in Peter's life. There were many streams of influence. There are many voices in our lives and many streams of influence in our lives as well. But what voice has supreme authority in your life? Is it the voice of Jesus Christ? For the Christian, the true disciple, the voice of Jesus is above every other voice because God has chosen to speak to us in these last days through His Son. Because we want to know the one true and living God, we listen to Christ. All true disciples focus intently on listening to Jesus. You've got to read your Bible. you got to pray. You've got to seek the Lord. So it's funny to me that people profess to be Christians and even get mad at other Christians for being too Christian because they always want to listen to the voice of Jesus. There's no such thing as two Christian folks. Discipleship demands attentive listening. Discipleship demands great encouragement. And discipleship demands complete commitment. Point number four discipleship demands belief. Discipleship demands belief. Now, this point might seem a little simple, especially if you're a Christian and you know and love Jesus and you believe in Him and have placed your trust in Him for salvation and you've been given the Holy Spirit and you're now living a new life in Christ. Discipleship demands belief. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to go ahead and read through Mark 14 through 29, but this is where we find uh, this issue or this uh, topic that d- discipleship demands belief what happens is is back in mark chapter 6 verse 7 jesus gave his apostles authority to cast out demons in his name the apostles had gone out ahead of jesus a little bit and they came to a town and they met a man who had a son who was demon possessed now this demon would try to throw this boy's body in water so he would drown or throw it in a fire so he would burn to death and so this man was a father who loved his son and was absolutely desperate to save his son so he brings this little boy to the disciples and the disciples cast out the demon. Well, they attempted to. It didn't work. And so then they get in an argument with some of the Pharisees and the guy and the crowd and Jesus sees the disciples arguing with this crowd of people and walks up to them and says, what are you guys arguing about? And this guy's like, my son is demon possessed and, and they couldn't heal him. And so this guy in desperation runs over to Jesus and in verse 21, he says... And he asked his father, uh, how, oh, I'm sorry, verse 22, it has, been, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, uh, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He says, Jesus, they couldn't do anything. If you can do anything, please help us. Jesus' response, he looks at them and says, verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can because he just went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you can. Jesus is like, you don't know who I am. All things are possible for him who believes. All things are possible for him who believes. Now, this is the object lesson for the disciples because we find that Jesus just said that in order to cast his demon out, it was possible if they believed. But the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, so we now know that they didn't what? believe. And so Jesus pulls them aside and is teaching them now about the need to have a strong belief in Christ. Why? Well, because they were going to be, in just a few short months, doing absolutely radical things that were going to birth the church. And if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus is calling you not just to live a natural life, but to live a supernatural life. And he will call you to do things that are incredible And unnatural. But in order for those things to become a reality, Jesus tells us that belief is required. Now, what's interesting to me about this section of Scripture is how do we know, or what was the problem with... uh, Or, I'm sorry, let me get to my notes here. I'll say it a little bit more clearly. How do you know that you have a strong faith? how did the disciples what what should have been a key indication for these disciples that their uh, belief was incomplete this is what I find interesting their belief would have been demonstrated listen don't miss this through prayer look down at verse 28 and 29 after this whole event happens Jesus ends up casting out this demon the boy gets healed the disciples get alone with Jesus and they ask him Hey, we believe, but you know, why, why couldn't we cast this demon out? Look at verse 28. When he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive this out? Here's the answer. And he said to them, this one, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. In other words, the disciples went up to this demon. They tried to cast it out. The demon wouldn't leave. And the disciples said, we can't do it. What they should have done is stopped in their tracks and started praying. And their lack of prayer revealed their lack of belief in Christ and their complete and utter reliance on themselves. And so Jesus was saying that true discipleship requires you to believe, but your belief will be demonstrated by how you pray and how much you pray. So listen, follower of Christ, do you pray? How much do you ask God to do? Do you rely on Him in moments when He calls you to do supernatural things? If your prayer life is lacking, and particularly for us men, as we talk less than women, I kid you not, my wife can pray for hours and I pray for five minutes and I'm done. But listen, our belief is demonstrated through our prayer. So the question to you is, is are you a follower of Christ? Yes. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Your prayer life will reveal that reality. They needed to make prayer a priority in their lives. Discipleship demands belief. Point number five. We're moving right along here. Discipleship demands humility. Humility. Let me stop right there before we get into this point, because I just want to really clarify this to us. I hope now that as we're going through some of these verses, you're you're seeing Jesus be... He's not mincing words here. He's absolutely clear as to what a disciple looks like. And so if Jesus said that true disciples, they observe all that Jesus commanded, you cannot call yourself a disciple if you're not observing what he's commanded you. So if you're not doing these things, how can you say with a clear conscience that you're a disciple? And so I talk to people and they say, well, those people are two Christians. What they really mean is they're actual Christians. That means you're not. And you need to listen intently to what Jesus is saying here. Because your eternity hinges Now listen, we don't work to be saved. Jesus saves us through his death and burial and resurrection. But to the true believer, he then gives them the Holy Spirit and imparts to us a new nature. To where then we want to be like Christ. And so when Jesus instructs us what disciples are, it's not something we fight and reject. It's something that we willfully embrace because we've been given a new nature. And so if you're fighting these things you might not have a new nature. You might still be dead in your sins. You might have a form of godliness, but you might deny its power. There's no transformation. Let that be a warning because you too can be filled with the Spirit and saved. Jesus is just calling you to turn from self and turn to Him. Amen? Point number five, discipleship demands humility. Discipleship demands humility. Look at Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. They came to... Now remember, these are all things that they're going to have to learn because they're going to be the ones who are going to birth the church. These are important lessons for them to learn about discipleship. Discipleship demands humility. Mark nine thirty three. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them would be the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last uh, He shall be last of all and a servant of all. Taking a child, he sat before uh, them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Now, we hear that and we laugh. But I would have done the same thing. Imagine this. You've spent the last two and a half years with Jesus almost every day and every night. And then all of a sudden, in Mark chapter 8, they come to the realization that he's the guy. And so they come to the realization that he's the guy and like, oh, our best friend is the Savior. And so they're walking along with Jesus and Jesus is probably in front of them or behind them and they're like, hey, we're going to be like the best. Who's the greatest? And Jesus knew what they were talking about. And so along the way, he stops and he says, guys, what were you talking about? They didn't want to say anything, but Jesus knew. What they were talking about is who would have the greatest place of honor. What they wanted was a place of honor because they were closest to the Savior. They were exalting themselves. And so Jesus gave them a lesson in humility. Because they should have been exalting the Savior. Verse 36 then, this is what's so interesting about this. Jesus takes a child. Now, in our culture, and we just had an announcement about children and children's ministry, we love children. Jesus loved children. So we esteem children. They're valuable to us. In this culture, to a first century Jew, the children were not valuable. Uh, Nobody got honor by hanging out with kids, Youth pastors back then would not have been looked on very highly. So what happens is, is Jesus takes a child, the least esteemed person in their society, and he sets them on his knee. And he tells them that in order to have a place of honor, they had to voluntarily serve in the lowest place of honor and live for others instead of self. Do you want a place of honor among God's people? I do, unapologetically. What's interesting about this section of Scripture is Jesus didn't tell them to not want to have a place of honor among God's people. He didn't say don't think that way. Instead, he told them how to have a place of honor. In fact, he told them to serve in the lowest place of honor and then they would be honored. Look what it says sitting down he called the twelve to them if anyone wants to be first he shall be last of all and a servant of all so you want to be honored then you need to serve in the lowest way true disciples of Christ seek always to exalt Christ and there is no task that is above us one of the things I love about serving with the leaders in Revolve Youth Ministry when I ask them to pick up trash they pick up trash One of the reasons I had Julian open in prayer this morning is because Julian also teaches for me when I'm gone at times in the pulpit in our youth ministry, but when I tell Julian to clean the toilets, he cleans the toilets. He deserves a place of honor because he is all about exalting Christ. Jesus says the things that you do in private, I will honor you publicly for. So I'm not taking Julian's reward. My question to you is, are you serving voluntarily where you will not receive honor I don't want to serve in the children's ministry I don't want to serve in the coffee ministry I want to preach if you're not willing to serve the lowest you will never be honored among God's people true discipleship real discipleship discipleship demands humility point number six Discipleship demands, this is our last point, love for other believers. Discipleship demands love for other believers. Look at Mark nine forty-two through 49. This might surprise you, especially in our culture we've dumbed down love to a feeling. This is a way that we show love to each other. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy milestone hung around his neck, millstone hung around his neck. He had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire. Verse 45, If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet and be cast into hell. Verse 47, If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes uh, to be cast into hell. Verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire now a millstone was a big round stone that was pulled by a donkey used to crush grain in a mill keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about this a little bit more when you follow jesus he demands listen here it comes that you do not lead other believers in to sin He calls his disciples to be holy and he calls his disciples to help others be holy as well. Jesus, seizing the opportunity of this little child that's sitting on his knee, starts to teach them a couple more object lessons about discipleship of the true believer. And he has this little child sitting on his knee and he basically is making an analogy that a true believer is humble like a little child. And he says, whoever causes one of my kids to sin, well, let's just say this. It's better for him to drown. This is Jesus speaking. True love is concerned with holiness in others' lives. We have been given a new nature We no longer follow the prince and the power of the air and we no longer follow darkness. We now follow the light of the world and as a result, we are lights of the world. A city sit upon the hill shining the glory of God by preaching the gospel that salvation is available to all who would believe. We follow righteousness and goodness and holiness. We follow God. We follow Christ. Not Satan and sin. And so Jesus is saying that my disciples do not tempt others to sin that's true love in fact first corinthians 13:6 it says love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but it rejoices in the truth true love is happy when someone's not living in sin if you really love someone you would be grieved by their sin discipleship demands a love for other believers So, how do this is fascinating to me? How do we help others to be holy if true love helps others to be holy? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verses 43, 45, and 47. Look what it says in verse 43. If your hand, verse 45, if your foot, verse 47, if your i so first he said don't lead them to stumble but then he switches and makes it personal and he says you the key to helping others be holy don't miss this is to be holy yourself the the bible says in 1 Corinthians Paul says it's a promise good or i'm sorry bad company corrupts good morals If you are living in sin, you will corrupt others in the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why Paul said, get it out of the church. And so you want to exercise true love to the people around you in the body of Christ? Focus on dealing with your own sin in three areas of your life. Jesus told us to deal with sin in three areas. He said, if your hand causes you to stumble or sin if your foot causes you to stumble if your eye your hand represents what you do your feet represent where you go and your eyes represent what you see if you're looking at things inappropriate if you want to go see a movie that's rated R that is absolutely sinful and inappropriate and you invite another Christian to join in your sin that's one that we don't think about right Wow, that movie looks really good. I'm going to call my Christian friends and ask them if they want to go see it with me. You've just invited a believer to join in your sin. Because you're not concerned with what media that you're consuming. You're willing to sin with your eyes. And so you're not really concerned if other believers around you sin with theirs. That is not true love. Not only your eyes, but where you go. Do you have a drinking problem and you're a Christian and you frequent bars regularly? So you invite other believers to come with you and just to have one harmless drink and they might have had an alcoholic past. This is what's fascinating about verse 42 to me is that Jesus doesn't say what's going to happen if you do lead other believers to sin. He just says, it's better for you to drown. You don't want to find out. That scares me. It's called the fear of God. And it's a good thing to have. The third way is what you do. What you do. How about this, business owners? Managers of companies? You have shady business dealings. And you don't mind inviting other Christians into your shady business dealings. So, how do you be holy in these areas of life? Jesus said to deal with your own holiness, deal with it in these three areas. But how do we actually deal with it? Well, the answer radical action to remove. Look what he says. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, what? Cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. Believers make war on their sin with absolute prejudice. Aggressive dealing with sin. Do you have a problem looking at porn? Don't try to be better. Throw your computer away. You have a problem drinking? Stop going to bars. Stop walking down the alcohol section. Jesus is saying that the solution to dealing with sin is radical action. It's not hoping it'll be better next time. In fact, Albert Einstein said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. If you're not aggressively dealing with sin in these areas of your life, you, it's a promise, will lead others into sin. As a youth pastor, as a guy that deals with college age and junior high and high school age uh, people a lot, this is an incredible grievance of mine, especially with young men who are professing born-again believers that invite young women to do things that are sinful. It's also something that grieves my heart by young ladies dressing in a way that invites young men to do things that are sinful. Maybe the what you're wearing this morning, you need to hear the warning from verse 42. I know I'm radical, right? No, I'm a normal Christian who wants holiness and righteousness. There is no such thing as two Christian folks. Jesus did not mince words here. He demands his followers be holy like him. That's why when we know the grace of God and the Holy Spirit fills us, we seek to be, as Romans 12:2 says, transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because we were from a fallen state, now saved by grace, longing for heaven, holiness, and righteousness in a place where there is no sin. And right now, on this earth, in this flesh, we don't accept our sin, we bite our sin. By the way, side note, for you readers, you might want to pick up John Owen's book called The Mortification of Sin. Absolute classic and gem about dealing with sin in the life of a believer. You should read that book. So, in closing, there is no such thing as too Christian. There is Christian and there is non Christian. When we follow Christ, Jesus demands our complete commitment. When we follow Christ, our discipleship demands that we need encouragement. When we follow Christ, Jesus demands, God demands that we attentively listen to Jesus. Discipleship demands, Jesus demands that if we are going to follow him, we need to believe that he can do the things that he said he can do and that we can do the things that he called us to do. And our belief will be demonstrated through prayer. Following Jesus and our discipleship demands that we be humble. Because folks, it's not about us. It's not about a pastor. It's not about anybody else. It's about Jesus. And our humility is required because we are called to glorify God and exalt Christ, not ourselves. And finally, discipleship demands for a love for other believers. But listen, does your love run deep enough to not lead others into sin? Fathers, let me just say one more thing on that as a youth pastor. Uh, The Bible tells fathers not to exasperate their children and provoke them to sin. One of the ways that fathers often provoke their children into sin is through exasperation. We don't have time. We'll have to save that one for another sermon. Love your kids. Don't always tell them how bad they are. Spend time telling them how good they are. Spend more time telling them how good they are than how bad they are. If you don't, you're exasperating them. That doesn't mean you're not going to tell them how things I got to deal with, right? Amen? So in closing, my question to you is this. Are you following Jesus? The answer is yes, those things are in my life and I hear them and I want to do them more. Or no, but you're just a crazy radical. Well, I want to let you know that if you're in here and you're not following Christ this morning, Jesus wants you to be a crazy radical. God created you. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much that he sent his son to do something so radical that would pay the price for your sin for all eternity so you could be with him forever. And now he's calling you to be radical for him because he was first radical for you. And so Jesus would invite you this morning. All who are thirsty, come. And I will give you water and you will never thirst again. Come and follow me. Amen? Let's sing about following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. And we confess that we want to follow you. But Lord, we also confess that we need help. The demands of discipleship, they're so difficult, Lord. We could not do them apart from your Spirit. So we pray for your Spirit to come in and enable those things within us. We love you, Lord, so very dearly. And we pray that you would help us follow you with greater passion. Lord, I pray that that it would, we would follow you so radically that people that weren't following you that radically would just be so convicted about being around us. And that we would share the grace and the love of Christ and explain to them why we are unapologetically radical. It's because we're passionate, Lord, because we love you. We love you, Lord, and now we worship you. And Lord, we just want to tell you, we're going to follow. We're going to follow. And we're going to ask for your help. We need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.